I was living in India about 14 years ago or so. When I was living up in the mountains in a town near Darjeeling named Sonada, living in a tiny little shack that was overlooking a Tibetan monastery run by a very old and renowned Tibetan Lama, Kalu Rinpoche. And the particular view I had from the shack I was living in down into his monastery encompassed a building that I had never seen even when I would go into his monastery to see him or to talk to him. Once I realized this, that there was this whole other building that I had never been in and actually had never seen except from that particular vantage point, I became very curious and I asked him, what is that building? What happens there? And he replied, oh, that's where people do long retreats. And I said, oh, how long? And he said, oh, three years, three months, and three days. That's our long retreat program. (laughs) So the first thing I asked was, why three years, three months, and three days? Isn't that kind of a peculiar number? And he said, well, if you want to count on, or you want to be able to count on or rely on three years of attentiveness or awareness, then you have to put in a little extra time just as insurance. And so what we do is we make it three years, three months, and three days. And that way we figure that there will be about three years worth of actual meditation. And I was really curious. I had just begun to practice maybe six, seven months before that time. And the thought of sitting for three years, (laughs) three months, and three days was just inconceivable to me. The thought of sitting for a month was inconceivable to me. And so I probed a lot and asked a lot of questions about how people could possibly sustain their energy or maintain that kind of commitment which seemed so beyond belief to me. And what he told me, what I learned was that actually there were a whole series of contemplations and reflections that people did daily in order to re-inspire themselves and in order to bring a fuller commitment day after day to such a long journey. And it's these contemplations or reflections I'd like to talk about tonight. The first of these is is what is called the contemplation or the reflection on the precious human birth, or the preciousness of our human birth, which means not only birth in this realm, but having a life where all of the conditions have come together in some way to enable one to practice the Dharma, which makes it much more precious. As Steve mentioned in one of his talks, the human birth is considered a fabulous place for the pursuit of enlightenment because of the precise mixture of sorrow and happiness that that exists 
in this realm compared to other realms. And even if you don't have any belief in some larger cosmology, you can see it within the possibilities of even just being a human, that if there is so much sorrow and so much suffering in one's life, then it's very hard to have any kind of energy for an inquiry or an investigation. One feels so burdened and so overwhelmed and so pained by it all that it's very, very difficult to get any kind of distance and be able to actually explore what is happening. And if one is absolutely dizzy with delight and completely happy all the time, without any need to actually look deeper beyond appearances and beyond superficialities, then also it's not that easy. So to have just enough suffering and just enough happiness is really the best mixture. Another component, another one of these conditions that has to come together is for there to have been an enlightened teacher such as the Buddha who taught the path clearly so that others could attain personal realization. And what the Buddha taught in this regard, practically speaking, was the Eightfold Path. The teaching has to be preserved in a pure or undistorted form in one's own time, which actually is something of a miracle. If you think about, you know, the telephone game, where if I just said something to someone in the front row who said it to someone in the second row and on and on, by the time it got to the back of the room, it would probably be unrecognizable. It would be an entirely different statement altogether. And to think that somehow, through all of these hundreds of years, something still relevant and still precise has been preserved is a miracle. And so it is available to us in a very pragmatic way. It's important that the teaching still be taught as a method of practice and not merely as a scholarly pursuit or as a devotional process, which is more removed and more abstract from people's lives. So it has to be maintained or preserved in such a way that's not separate from people's ability to actually keep it alive and meaningful. The teaching has to be available and not hidden, and there have to be teachers and there have to be circumstances for pursuing it. And then finally, one must hear about the teaching. One must have some amount of leisure time and some amount of financial ease and a desire to pursue it in an experiential form. That's why even in the Buddhist time, they said that about one in 100,000 people were interested and had the ability to pursue the practice in a pragmatic way. And it is very rare and very precious for all of these different factors to come together. It's not a common event for someone to have an interest, have an ability to pursue that interest, have the time, have the circumstance. It's very, very rare. Some people's lives are so oppressed or so circumscribed that for these people, 
Freedom has a very definite but limited meaning. It's the freedom to move from point A to point B. It's the freedom to work or the freedom to cross certain lines. And while it is a compelling need for these people, it is still born out of a great deal of oppression, and it's very limited. It is quite rare to have the opportunity to be able to define freedom in a much broader and more total way. To have enough space in one's life to be able to think of freedom in the sense of unconditioned freedom, something that's unbound and unshaken by circumstance. It's very rare to be in this position to think about freedom as real freedom of mind. And we are all in that position. It's quite extraordinary to be in a place such as Bodhgaya in India where the Buddha was enlightened and to see so many people in that place, born there, living there, so overwhelmed by circumstance that freedom has a very narrow meaning. Freedom to eat the next day, something like that. and also to be in other countries in Asia where the Buddhist teaching is so taken for granted, it's so much a part of the cultural fabric, that really people get quite glib about it. It's so familiar that people don't have to think about how to bring it alive, how to make it meaningful or real day after day. They're not faced with the kinds of dilemmas or mysteries that Western people are faced with And so they're not forced to actually examine the teaching critically and bring it to life. And then in the West, in America and other countries, people have, relatively speaking, a great deal of ease and a great deal of time, but may have very little interest or faith. And so it's quite rare to have it all come together. This is the first contemplation, the recognition of all the many different circumstances that have to come together for the ability to actually practice to arise. This contemplation also includes an awareness of the kind of reciprocal relationship we have with people who may have helped us get here or maybe supporting us in some way in being here, either financially or emotionally or whatever. Also people such as the people who work here on staff who are supporting us with their service. When the Buddha was first creating the rules for the order of the monks, one of the rules was that monks were not allowed to keep food overnight. 
They were not allowed to hold it or store it, which had a kind of funny consequence in that Buddhist monks then could not actually become hermits. They could not completely withdraw from some kind of contact every day because they were dependent every day on contact with someone for their food. And it was considered a very reciprocal relationship, even if it was done in silence, with the monk never raising his eyes even to look up at the person offering the food. That bond of dependence and mutuality was there with the village every day. It's a very strong bond. The teaching is that mendicants are indebted to those who feed them because they are not being fed in a personal way, but, be, but are being fed for what they represent. So that the Buddha often said that if one were to accept and eat the food offered by people in this way and then not live purely or then not practice wholeheartedly, it would actually be better to have swallowed an iron-burning ball than to have swallowed that food. And it's that much a violation of the kind of trust that exists in that relationship. And so part of this reflection on the preciousness of a human birth is recognizing that spirit of loving-kindness which binds us all here. And to see that it is not an isolated act done completely alone. And the second contemplation is a contemplation on impermanence, to see that conditions constantly change, and that anything with the nature to arise must pass away. (laughs) And so it means not to be complacent in any way about having tomorrow. And this is an interesting point in the retreat, to realize this because suddenly our days are really numbered and they're going very quickly. And our whole lives are actually lived in a very delicate, tentative balance. And our lives themselves will also end, which can bring a sense of spiritual urgency, not a sense of fear or panic, but a great intentness of purpose In our society, sometimes, it seems like it's almost like breaking a taboo to have a recollection or a contemplation about death. And yet, if we do one, if we really come close to that recognition, if we can realize the imminence of death, it's an opportunity, it's not an obstacle, it's not a barrier. It both prepares us for that reality And it also takes away a certain amount of fear. Not only that, but we can also devote more of ourselves more completely and more totally both to the practice and to whatever we do. There was a great Tibetan yogi named Milarepa who before he made any kind of choice or decision for a certain period of his life during a certain time would ask himself the question, What would I do if this were my last day? 
is this what I would do? Would I take that nap? You know? What would I do? And it's an amazing undertaking. I actually consciously did that for a while when I was living in India at that time, in that place. I decided for a couple of weeks or a month that I was going to ask myself that very frequently. If this were my last day, what would I do? And I would do it repeatedly, and it made an incredible difference. And it was rather shocking to see what a difference it made. Actually, one can become much more fearless with whatever one encounters and be endowed with strength to persevere through difficulties and to penetrate very deeply because we don't deflect, we don't give up, and we don't have difficulty in arranging priorities. Life is very uncertain, but death is certain. And we can overcome a fear of pain and a fear of adversity. And we can lose a sense of hesitation or have hardiness or holding back if we recognize that. Even short of having an understanding about the imminence or inevitability of death, we can see that the circumstances which are so intricate, it's like a very intricate mosaic or pattern that has created this situation, they will also change. And it's very difficult to know what will come next or how things will look the next time we again have an urge to undertake intensive practice. And so it's very precious and it will not last. The third of these contemplations is that of dukkha, or suffering, or unsatisfactoriness. Contemplate the suffering in the body, such as aging, or dying, or having the body be out of control, and contemplating the suffering in the mind, and having it be so out of control and also contemplating the kind of unease or insecurity that we experience in a world of incessant change. And when we come face to face with this, it is easy to resonate with the Buddha's statement that we are like children playing with our toys in a house that is burning down. It's a very deep and heartfelt realization and understanding. It's the kind of realization that comes from the bottom of your heart when you're tuning into that that space. And something that happens very slowly, little by little, as we open to this reality or this aspect of reality. We open slowly as our compassion grows, and our patience grows, and our resilience grows. 
as you might have noticed in the Buddha's time, in a lot of those stories, people would hear one line of a verse and become enlightened. And I don't know if you've ever wondered about that. (laughs) But what the commentaries say about that time and hours is that for ordinary people such as ourselves who tend to not get enlightened in one fell swoop upon hearing one line such as everything that arises must pass away but who actually have to put in very patient and persevering and long-term effort towards a deeper understanding the reason is so the scriptures say that we have to take an awakening to suffering little by little that we're actually not capable of opening in a flash to how insecure and how tentative and how sorrowful our existence is and so we get enlightened little by little as we open up more to this truth and to the other side, to the end of suffering as well. The goal, therefore, in practice, is not to suffer as much as possible, and it's also not to hold rigidly to that particular aspect of reality. The goal is to see clearly and to stay balanced. And so when that is the most predominant aspect, it's to try to open, to try to accept that. And when other things are seen more clearly, to stay open and to accept that. Most people who can openly acknowledge the body being out of control, the mind being out of control, or the sorrow of incessant change tend to be, at least in my observation, I don't know if you'll concur with this, but in my observation, they tend to be the happiest people that I know, or at least they seem to be. There's a certain edge of franticness that's gone. There's a certain panic of running around and trying to find the ultimate happiness that will not change and will not alter. It's gone. And so there's a sense of, of peace and contentment and joy, which seems very ironic somehow. In one of the collections of the Buddha's sayings, he was walking through the forest with some of his monks and he asked a very typical question it said that the Buddha reached down and scooped up some dirt from the forest floor on his fingernail and then he said to the monks oh monks which is greater the amount of dirt that's on the tip of my fingernail or the amount of dirt on the whole earth. And the monks, being very astute and wise, said, O Buddha, 
the amount of dirt on the whole earth is far greater than the amount of dirt that is now resting on your fingernail. And he said, just so, monks, the amount of suffering still experienced by someone who is established in the Dharma or established in the truth is like the amount of dirt on my fingernail compared to the amount of suffering that the same person experienced before this awakening, which is like the suffering that exists in the entire, the dirt that exists in the entire earth. That is the difference. And so having a certain amount of reflection on this aspect of our lives also makes us fearless and willing to take risks and willing to not withhold or hold back. But to be completely wholehearted and honest and humble in an ability to open to what actually is. And then the fourth of these reflections, after the preciousness of human birth and impermanence and suffering, is that of karma, or kama. I can never pronounce the Pali, kama. (laughs) Which says, in the simplest possible terms, that things do not happen at random or haphazardly, so that if you plant an apple seed, you will not get a mango. And you may beg, and you may plead, and you may protest. You may carry on in many different kinds of ways, but the laws of nature are such so that an apple seed will not bear the fruit of a mango. If we understand this, that the laws of nature will follow their own course, then actually we can move with that and live in harmony with that and be effective. We can direct the flow of our lives in this way. Normally, people tend to have one of two extreme views. The first view, which is the view that most people are conditioned with as children, as we grow up, is that everything is real. Everything we can see and touch and hear and smell and think about is real. And that there's some underlying or permanent basis for existence. And that because of this, there's solidity or substantiality or security to be found somewhere in this world of sense impressions. With this point of view, then everything that happens matters really a lot because we have this feeling that we need this or we need that and then we'll be happy with the right sound or the right smell or the right taste or the right sensation in the body or the right thought, then we will be happy. And as a consequence of this, we grasp and we cling to this world of changes and appearances And then we suffer because we're out of harmony. We're not living in accord with reality. The second view 
which is considered an extreme view, is not generally something people are conditioned to from a young age, but tends to be more of a spiritual extreme, which is the view that nothing is real and that, in effect, our lives are centered around the void or blank. And with this point of view, we believe that nothing matters, doesn't matter at all what happens, that everything is chaotic, and there comes from this a sense of paralysis. So that this, for example, would lead to the point of view that there's no need to put in effort in practice because everything is just empty anyway. Which is not uncommon. The problem with this perspective or point of view is that one doesn't see that things happen in this world of presentation of phenomena according to certain laws and that it is quite orderly. It's not haphazard and it's not chaotic. It doesn't just happen. And these are the laws of nature, or the Dhamma. One of these laws is the law of karma. And so we learn that one doesn't plant a bitter seed and reap a sweet fruit. It doesn't happen that way. We can turn our lives around and cease being out of harmony with this. We can look at, for example, the teaching of what particular karmic seed creates what we call a precious human birth, which is a human birth in which one has an opportunity to explore themselves in a different way. The teaching is that it is the seeds of sila, or morality, and samadhi, or concentration, and panya, or wisdom. It said that seeds of morality and concentration are what create the circumstance of being able to encounter the teaching. And seeds of wisdom are what allow one to use the circumstance well. Morality includes both a basic commitment to not harming others or oneself, and it also includes more active aspects such as giving or generosity and renunciation. With giving, there's the development of a generosity of spirit. Other benefits include a decreased amount of sorrow with loss or change because of the allowing open spirit that's cultivated. And it's said that there's increased insight into impermanence because when the mind is full of greed, we're very disinclined to think of things changing since what we want is to hold on to them and continually enjoy them. Generosity is also considered to be an expression of faith since in order to let go or relinquish or give up, we have to believe it's a good action. Generosity is also considered to be an expression of loving-kindness, since we cannot honestly give or truthfully give and be resentful or angry 
at the same time. And so even if it's just in those few moments of the act of giving, it is an act of expression of those feelings. And it's said that it's these seeds which somehow create a kind of openness and a spaciousness within us and an ability to let go, even momentarily, that will bring the karmic fruit of having an opportunity to actually continue to let go and explore that possibility in a much more inward way. Renunciation is a very similar faculty. Renunciation is another aspect, actually just of simplicity. So it's as though you were to ask yourself, what do I really need to be happy? And you can see, I think, even in being here, which is a great renunciation for many months, that looking back on lives that are very complex, a good deal of complicated lives are spent in maintenance, just holding it all together. And it's quite a burden. It also means renunciation of sense stimulation of the six senses. One, we can renounce that grasping after seeing and hearing and tasting and touching and so on. Then the mind can become luminous in that silence. This means not holding on to these stimuli, not dwelling on them. It doesn't mean not experiencing them. And a kind of delight in little, a delight in having just enough, brings a sort of wakefulness and aliveness to the mind, which it is said manifests as an opportunity to explore this more fully in a more ultimate way. Samadhi, or concentration, is the inclining of the mind towards tranquility and serenity. So these three, morality, generosity, and renunciation, plus samadhi, create the circumstance of encountering the teaching. And it's wisdom that allows one to use it well. If you remember some of those stories I told early, very early on in the retreat about people who encountered the Buddha and kind of said, so what? Well, well, that's nice, but I'm busy now. And some actually heard him speak or give teachings and just didn't care. Then you can see that to actually take hold of it, to actually have it mean something in one's life, takes more than just encountering it. To actually purify the mind through meditation is very, very hard work, which is probably no news to you at all. And to be able to sustain that kind of effort demands a certain right understanding all the way through, not just the right understanding that is the culmination of practice, but the right understanding that kind of surely guides us all the way through. If we look at something underwater, 
it appears at a different depth and of different dimensions than it actually is. And if we're trying to touch it, if we're trying to take hold of it in some way, we have to know this. We have to know that it's appearing in a distorted fashion in order to be able to succeed, to actually touch it or connect. We have to have that knowledge in order to aim accurately at it. In just that same way, we, <clears throat> we need some right understanding to be able to aim our effort and to be able to aim it accurately. To be able to aim it accurately through the kind of distorting veils of our delusion or our desires and so on. This right understanding is the beginning of the path, and yet it's the karmic fruit of previous effort to understand, or another way of thinking of it, it's the karmic fruit of a sincerity, of actually wanting to, go, to know and not needing that knowledge to be a certain way, to be willing to give up all concepts and all ideas, really just to want to know. These are the four contemplations, the preciousness of human birth, which is so rare, and then how tentative, how impermanent it all is. Third, that there is suffering in our lives. And fourth, that there's something we can do about that, that we can guide and direct our lives towards greater peace and greater harmony. And even though we only have a little time left, which is quite mysterious, I keep having the feeling that we just ended the orientation period and we're about to begin, but somehow it's all nearing the end. Even though there is not such a great amount of time left, every single moment of sincere application. Every moment of mindfulness plants a seed that is very powerful, and so it is quite important. It's not something that should be overlooked or neglected. And I know things get a little bit difficult often at this time of the retreat. It takes a much stronger determination to appreciate each moment at this time than it might have three weeks ago or a month ago. And yet it is so rare and so precious for all of this to come together. And each moment of mindfulness is so powerful that really, if you possibly can, you should not regard the retreat as over until it is actually over. When I lived in India, I was quite confident that I was never coming back to the States. And I lived there for altogether over three years, mostly doing practice. There was a certain amount of time in the beginning of my practice when a lot of my thoughts and fantasies would center around how I could extend my visa or manage to arrange things so I never had to come back to America to live. 
And because it was a very tentative situation, always, I was not in my own country, I did have a visa, it was not so healthy an environment, all kinds of circumstances were very delicate and uneasy. I wasn't sure how long I could prolong it, how long I could maintain it, even though I was completely determined to make it forever. But I did have the wisdom or great fortune of seeing that it was tentative. And so I look back on that time as perhaps the singular time in my life when I tried to use every single moment. I really did apply myself as though it were going to end and as though I did not know if the opportunity would arise again. And it was very precious. And I also look back on it as one of the happiest times of my life because I did not hold anything back, which turned out to be very wise because the year I got hepatitis and the (laughs) Indian police wanted to throw me out of the country because they thought I was a spy and... uh, you know, I ran out of money and <laughs> the variety of circumstances that came together that forced me to leave were undeniable. And even though I left kicking and screaming and sure that I would be back within six months, that was over 10 years ago. <laughs> and my life underwent some very dramatic changes. And it actually was from that time from the time that I left India until the time that I sat here for three months with Upandita was ten years. And it was that long before I had the opportunity to do long-term intensive practice again, even though I'm obviously surrounded by it, you know, almost every moment of my life. And so I would urge you not to consider... We have a little over two weeks of intensive practice left as something that is insignificant or unimportant. But to live each day here as though it were your last and to not hold back and to try to respect each and every moment of mindfulness. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.